Welcome to Cleft Talk, bringing you discussion on the topics that adults affected by cleft lip and or cleft palate have told us matter to them. Brought to you by the Cleft Lip and Palate Association as part of CLEFA's Adult Services Programme. Proudly funded by the VTCT Foundation. You're listening to Cleft Talk with Kenny Ardwin and Nikki Davis. My name is Nikki Davis and I'm the Adult Services Officer at Clapper. And I'm Kenny Ardwin and I'm the Adult Services Coordinator. Together we make up Clapper's Adult Service Delivery Team. Welcome to this month's Cleft Talk panel discussion brought to you by Clapper's Adult Services Project, proudly supported by the VTCT Foundation. Cleft Talk is your opportunity to learn more about the topics that adults born with a cleft across the UK told us are important to them through the Adult Survey and Roadshow. We hope that you find our panel discussions both entertaining and informative. Remember that you can keep up with the Adult Services Project online, including watching or listening to this and other panel discussions again at www.clapper.com slash adultservicesproject. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash adults. This month on the programme, we are discussing a topic that is interesting to people if they are concerned about kissing, sex and intimacy. Today we hope to provide you some information and reassurance about these things. It is our pleasure to welcome our fabulous panel guests, Nick Sharrett and Julia Cadogan. Can you please start by telling us a little bit about yourselves and your background? So I'm, I'm as you say, Julia Cadogan. I'm a clinical psychologist. I work in the Southwest Cleft Service and have done so for quite a few years now. And we cover the whole of the Southwest, so we travel around the region and provide support to antenatal mums right up to could be 70 year old whoever comes through our doors really. We really appreciate having you with us thanks very much for joining us. Um, I'm Nick Shower. I'm a researcher based uh, in the Centre for Appearance Research. Um, I've been there a few years now and have uh, been working on a PhD looking at the impact of visible difference on intimacy and romantic relationships uh, which is no doubt why you asked me to take part today. Um, I should probably mention at this point that by visible difference I mean any kind of appearance altering condition so I'm not somebody who's focused specifically on cleft so um, my uh, the people I've spoken to is kind of slightly broader um, but there's lots of similarities across conditions and how people respond and adjust to looking different to the norm. Certainly we really appreciate yeah. having your expertise on the panel mm. as well so a very warm welcome to you both. Um, I'm going to start with you, Julia, today. Um, so some people have reported that the physical act of kissing can be difficult for them, not because they didn't want to or didn't enjoy it, but because their lip shape made it a bit more difficult than for some other people. As a result, some people worried that they may be a bad kisser and so they tended to avoid it. What would you say to someone who's struggling with the physical act of kissing? 
I think there's probably two strands. There's the kind of what we call functional reasons, which somebody, where somebody might find it difficult. In other words, physical reasons. And also maybe the psychological mm. uh, aspects of kissing as well. But of course, they blend together, don't they? We can't separate those two out, as we well know. I think if we, what we need to make sure, first of all, is that there isn't a physiological reason for um, finding it difficult to kiss, because kissing obviously is a muscular um, activity, requires coordination and um, a degree of you know, fullness of the lips. And sometimes people with cleft lip and or palate um, may want to have some lip revision. And that, that is what we do in our service quite regularly for those um, adults who, um, who you know, maybe after any, many years their lips have thinned out and they're struggling um, with eating and things like that as a result. Um, and for those, those types of individuals, we will definitely have a discussion about any physiological, surgical type of intervention that we can provide as long as the psychologist is part of that process. And I have to emphasise that uh, we don't see surgery as a panacea for any sort of social, psychological issues that people might be experiencing. So it is very, I'm very fortunate to work with people who are very emotionally aware and intelligent in, their, in the way that they speak to patients and include them in decision making. So it is a collaborative approach that we adopt. So that's something that we would address, with, you know, talk to the patient very uh, carefully away from the surgeon in our psychology service and then go back with them and advocate for them with the surgeon there to work any, out any treatment plans. Um, but if that is um, not the issue and it's more, it may be to do with anxiety and uh, stress and feeling um, very self-conscious about how their lips look and may not have a lot of experience or confidence in, in actually kissing somebody else, then we would, you know, in our psychology service, we would look at that very carefully and maybe work out a sort of psychology type approach to help them to relax, physiologically relax, and, and be able to feel that, that, that kissing is part of a, a relationship. It's not to be all in, in itself, and all in itself. It should be part of a friendship mm. that has gone mm. further. Um, and yes, it's an expression of affection. For sure. So that's how we would approach that. Excellent. And I suppose people just feeling that they can come and talk to the psychology service about this is yes. really valuable yeah. for people to know as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, this one's for you, Nick. Uh -huh. So some people mentioned the, the difficulty with knowing the right time to disclose that they have been born with a cliff and to discuss it with partners, etc. And to any impact that their condition may have on intimacy, what is a good time for people to have this discussion, how they may approach that conversation? Well, I think um, sort of before talking a little bit about disclosure or having this discussion that you mm -hmm. refer to, um, I should just probably kind of give a bit of background, which is to say that some of the research I've done does suggest that these areas, you know, relationships, intimacy, sex, can be very difficult for some people with visible difference. Not everybody, but for for some people. And some people have told me it's been the most difficult and the most challenging part of having uh, a, a altered appearance um, in, in their experience. So the first thing I'd say is that these concerns are quite normal and quite usual and that people should certainly not feel embarrassed or uncomfortable about, about feeling this way. Um, looking at disclosure, um, more specifically, and I think we'll talk about communication a little bit more later, so perhaps I'll just focus on the sort of specifics for disclosure. Um, it's cro cropped up in previous research that I've done, and then I've recently done a study focusing on, on that conversation. Um, and perhaps, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any kind of consensus about like, the best time or the best way of doing things. Um, 
for example, the issue of timing. Some people prefer to do it very early in a relationship. Some people prefer to do it later on. There's a bit of a balance people feel between how much they've invested into a relationship and the risk of their experience not being a good one. Um, and so therefore that decision as to when you kind of take the leap and have this discussion or tell this person um, can be a difficult one to to do. Um, it can also be something that might depend a little bit on the actual relationship itself. If it's a, uh, a very intimate relationship that might kind of affect when people feel it's best to, to speak to the other person. Um, sometimes people feel they're being dishonest if they haven't uh, told somebody about a appearance altering condition or a health condition up up front and early on and they might feel that there's some kind of obligation to share that information with the other person perhaps before they're comfortable doing so before they think the relationship is kind of ready to, to take that that conversation um, similarly when it comes to the method uh, people have kind of discussed having a preference for and employing a variety of methods whether that's face-to-face -face, uh, over the phone text email um, on dating apps and there really doesn't seem to be a strong uh, sense of agreement about when it's best to, or when and how it's best to, to have the discussion and to, to disclose. But what people definitely have said to me is that it's really important that they're comfortable with how they do it. So perhaps there aren't kind of hard and fast rules, but it's really about thinking about what suits you as an individual, what suits your relationship, how you feel and when you feel comfortable doing it. And trying not to feel under an obligation to tell that person at a time that isn't right for for you so really kind of doing what you're happy with um uh, thinking about it perhaps perhaps preparing perhaps you know generating some kind of a script you might like to use or deciding how much depth you want to go into when you're speaking to them do you want to talk about personal impact medical impact anything else having a response for questions might be useful for example um if uh, somebody was to disclose that they have a cleft, then perhaps there might be a question about whether there's anyone else in the family and is that hinting at and have implications for the potential for biological children being um, born with a cleft. So thinking about what people might ask and how you might respond is probably quite, quite useful as, as well. For sure, and I think one of the things that we've seen come up as well is that um, question is, particularly difficult sometimes when people have an isolated cleft palate mm -hmm. um, because obviously it's not visible in the same way that um, a cleft lip or cleft lip and palate is and sure. knowing the point in a relationship at which to disclose that information sure. as well. And I think it, as you said it's kind of there's no consensus on, on that and it's different for different people. Mm -hmm. um, I'd add in as well that um, obviously the things we're talking about there like the, the timing and the method of things that you can control but it's probably also important to accept there might be things that are outside of your control. For example, the reaction of the other person mm. might not be fully uh, dependent upon how you actually go about having the discussion. And they may be liable to respond one way or the other just because of who they are. Mm. Um, so people have kind of spoken about conceptualising their response as a test of the relationship or, and, and its potential or as being indicative of the other person's character rather than their own worth as a person as being useful ways about thinking of the scenario if the response isn't positive and supportive, which we do have to acknowledge mm. is always a possibility. Um, so control what you can and try and accept what you can't and be aware that a lot of people, relative to the number I've spoken to, have said that often the anticipation and the fear is much worse than the reality mm. and it goes better than they 
that they thought it would once they actually kind of find themselves in that scenario and begin to 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 um, broach the subject with the other person. Of course, of course, and I think in my experience on the road shows last year, um, there were a few people whose partners came along, and um, very much to them, it, it was not so much of an issue as it was for the person themselves in terms of broaching that, that conversation. Um, I'd like to stick with you, Nick, for the next question, which is that a number of people have reported to us um, that they felt that they were sexually naive or inexperienced compared to their peers and that their perceived lack of experience was impacting on their confidence when it came to sex and intimacy. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to those people? Sure. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about the research that there exists. There is some evidence um, from uh, Kristen Fragan and uh, Nicholas Stock um, using a Norwegian sample of adolescents of 16 years old and a fairly large sample, 650 uh, participants with cleft, that those uh, participants at that age and compared to a non-cleft population had had fewer romantic relationships. They were currently less of them or fewer of them were currently in a romantic relationship and more of them had never had a romantic relationship. Um, similarly with uh, maybe a, with um, uh, participants, adolescent participants again and young adults with a visible difference. Uh, Catherine Griffiths from the Centre for Appearance Research um, conducted a study that used kind of interview data and uh, quantitative or kind of numbers or survey based data and um, that suggested again that perhaps just under half of the people who have a visible difference were concerned about their romantic life and their, their intimacy and their kind of potentially sexual relationships um, and they were worried because they felt that appearance was attractive to relationships, they feared negative evaluation from others, they felt unattractive and they had um, difficulty talking to potential partners. Um, there is then some evidence that, not talking about appearance specifically, but that people who fear rejection um, are less likely to, uh, sorry, as an adolescent, are less likely to have romantic relationships as a young adult and are more anxious and more avoidant in their uh, kind of feelings and interactions with potential partners. Um, and these fears about initiating and uh, relationships and being rejected are also kind of uh, apparent when you speak to um, those with visible difference in, in, in research context. Um, so the, the kind of fear and the worry is, is there. Um, there's some models which perhaps Julia would be better place to speak on than me that sort of suggests if you're afraid of something and you don't ever do it because you're worried about the consequences, it becomes more difficult mm. for you to do it. You don't acquire the skills that might, that might allow you to navigate that, that scenario. Um, and you also don't experience the feared negative consequences of engaging in that scenario, whether they would have actually materialized or, or not. Um, the idea of the fear uh, being worse than the reality and the disclosure scenario I was just talking about kind of echoes echoes that um, so um, obviously the problems there um, so Julia may be better placed to talk about how people may be able to kind of overcome this but in in some of the research we've just mentioned quickly um, people felt that being able to draw on good social skills could be useful um, 
that um, somehow dismissing the attitudes of those that are negative or respond poorly um, can be helpful. Normalising the concerns, accepting that other people do have them, and, and as you mentioned in the introduction, just feeling that you're not alone. Um, incorporating your appearance as one aspect of your identity that you could be proud of that might have had some benefits for you or have, might have contributed to the person that you've become um, and placing value on attributes other than appearance are perhaps all things that may kind of help people in this scenario um, and then obviously drawing on social support from friends and family who uh, like you and accept you and kind of thinking what well, if they feel about me in this way and um, I respect and value them, why shouldn't anybody else feel like that about, about me? May all be things that could be, could be useful or could be beneficial. Mm, certainly, and, and I imagine as well, Kulia, you know, clinically in your day-to-day -day role, um, I imagine you're, you're giving you know, advice to people on this, this very topic. Is there anything that you'd like well, to add? Well, interestingly, I saw a young man this morning um, who is 20, who's at university and is struggling with exactly this type of issue um, around confidence in relation to his appearance. And um, we developed what we call goal-based goal planning kind of treatment, whereby it's a kind of what we call systematic desensitization to things that you're fearful of. So in psychology, we often create what we call ladders of exposure. So you, you try and face your fears, as, as Nick was saying, in a very gradual way of increasing difficulty and intensity. So maybe the first step would be, for example, going into a pub for a few seconds where you don't know everybody, walking out again, calming down, and then maybe going in for a bit longer over a period of time. And then the next rung on the ladder might be slightly more difficult and more challenging, it might be going to a party that initially or previously you would have avoided going to, but trying to face the, your fears again and go to the party. Just allow yourself to go there for a few minutes and then withdraw and then try and go back in again and so on and so forth. And then you can work towards the ultimate goal, which might be approaching somebody you find attractive and starting a conversation. And then we would practice, we do imaginal desensitization. Maybe we get people into a very deep state of relaxation, maybe use clinical hypnosis to sort of rehearse those, those scenarios. Um, we might also use eye movement and desensitization reprocessing, which is a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> which is EMDR for short, um, which is where people may, may have had very traumatic experiences of, which some, you know, a lot of us do face, mm -hmm. of dealing with uh, situations um, which have proved to be very difficult. And we might use that as a technique to help people to put those horrible memories back where they belong in the past and, and work on the future and looking forwards. So there's lots of things that we can do in a very systematic and supportive environment so that we would see people over a period of time and, and help them to get through those sorts of uh, therapy techniques and coping mechanisms. Definitely, definitely worth yeah. people getting yeah. in touch. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, uh, so this um, next one's again for um, you, Nick. Um, so one of the common reports is that some people become quite anxious about their body's performance during kissing sex and other acts of intimacy and focus on that, making intimacy stressful. What can people do to help themselves relax a bit more and enjoy that? This um, sort of self-focus or self-evaluation is very similar to a term um, that's used in some of the research, which is called spectatoring, which is... Um, 
an intense kind of fixation and monitoring of your own bodily parts. Um, and obviously this can impact people's enjoyment of sexual activity and lead to stress and anxiety. Um, it's probably important to note that anyone can experience this. It's not just people that have a condition that affects their appearance. Um, and that it's possible perhaps that having a visible difference um, and kind of acts and activities that magnify or make it more noticeable or prominent might kind of contribute to, to this, but it is something that many other people might experience as well. Um, kind of some examples from people that I've spoken to would include um, ladies that have had breast cancer and treatment for breast cancer who have explained that they can't engage in sexual activity with a long-term, trusted, loved, cared partner without keeping a bra on, for example. Um, people who have a cleft have told me that they would um, perhaps adopt positions in sexual activity or avoid activity that makes the, the kind of mouth and the face area more noticeable or more, more prominent. Um, and then people attempts to cover parts of their body that might be covered might be affected by a visible difference, sorry, with bedclothes or, or, or um, clothes and lighting, um, similarly to the, to the example of uh, breast cancer. Um, so the three kind of main uh, effects that people described to me was the, um, this kind of spectator idea and not being able to be in the, in the moment and enjoy the activity and engage in it fully. Um, desire to kind of cover up and, and conceal or hide the difference from a partner, even if it was someone that they really cared for and cared for them. Um, and just reduced sexual desire, not wanting to, to engage in the same way. Um, so there's research suggesting that a negative body image, so how we feel about our, our body, our, our, our shape and our, our appearance, um, can contribute to this kind of distraction during sex um, and that uh, kind of sexually contextualized body image, so body image that focuses on a certain part of the body that might be relevant to sexual activity, um, predicts distraction better than general body image. Um, so I think it's consistent perhaps that a visible difference that people might be quite aware of and that um, looks different to the norm if such thing exists where and when that's kind of salient or prominent or noticeable or relevant to activity, people are going to potentially experience distress and anxiety. Um, so what people can do to help themselves relax a little bit more and enjoy intimacy, we can also draw on the body image literature here. There's a kind of emerging field of um, positive body image um, and there's some, some evidence that that can protect against this fixation or the spectatoring on oneself. Um, there's a researcher called Jessica Oliva who's done lots of work on positive body image and some of the things that she uh, focuses on are kind of the idea that we should focus on our functionality of our body, what it can do, we should, we should um, respect and enjoy its capabilities rather than being entirely focused on its appearance um, and we should kind of engage in activities that are physical in some way and that we enjoy and value, whether that's dancing or yoga or whatever you are able to do and whatever you like doing. Um, and of course, avoiding things that detract from body image, such as 
potentially the media that we consume, being aware of that and being sceptical about it, um, trying not to put too much value on comparisons of people that we feel look different or better to us and not, not, um, not letting these impact upon how we feel about ourselves and limiting our exposure to too much appearance talk and you know, talk that's focused on how we look. Um, there's uh, a Dr. Jen Mann in the US has suggested that mindfulness might be a good um, approach to to use to combat with some of these concerns and perhaps Julia might want to say a little bit about mindfulness again. I was, I was thinking that as, as you were speaking actually because mm -hmm. that's the approach we would perhaps consider mm -hmm. but I think Alongside that, is the centre of all of this is the trust. The mm -hmm. relationship has to be, you have to feel trust in your partner and talk about perhaps your fears about exposing parts of your body, etc., etc., so that you're starting from a baseline of understanding. If possible, of course, that's not always possible. Uh, but mindfulness, mindfulness, yes, very much so, whereby you live in the moment. You know, you're talking about the function, functionality of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a bit sort of related to that in a way, focusing on the physical and, you know, responsiveness, the, the kind of sensuality of the moment, yeah. um, and trying to really bring your attention down to that to that experience, rather than widening your mind out and thinking about um, being monitored or spectated by your partner, mm -hmm. so that you're living in the present as much as you can, and you can support people to learn how to do that, and that's something we might do in therapy around kind of intimacy and sexual relationships so that we can rehearse that um, and, and help people to kind of again use a kind of goal-based planning approach to work in a sort of systematic way with the partner might see the partner with with the individual as well and that can be very very potent if you see the couple together rather than just one individual mm. so you've got the social context as well so that can be helpful sure that's really interesting to hear because um <clears throat> i didn't uh I speak at all of the Kind of tips that this Dr. Jen Mann offers, but communication with a partner was mm. one of the other ones that I thought was really important that she she talks about, and um, uh, and also creating rituals to like transition from one role and one part of your life into another. So if you uh, are a um, a mother or a father, or you uh, are an employee or a, a manager or, or whatever whatever your other roles are, moving between that and being a a partner in a sexual activity, um, you do things that kind of signal that you're moving from one place in your life to to another. Um, and um, back on the communication, I've had um, some people say that even where they have again a very supportive relationship, a very uh, loving partner, they and their sexual lives have been impacted because of how they feel about how they look they can find it very difficult to speak to their partner about this perhaps because the partner accepts them and loves them for who they are um, and doesn't feel that they should feel this way um, people often have said in my experience it can be difficult for people who don't have a visible difference to really understand what it's like so perhaps it's a little bit of a barrier there as well and not wanting to acknowledge that something that your partner um, accepts and is happy with and someone who loves you not acknowledge that that relationship might be affected by your appearance and how you feel about your appearance you can understand it could be quite a difficult topic to introduce into a 
into a relationship. Mm-hmm. So yeah, com- communication I think is very important mm-hmm. as, as well. Definitely, communication is key. And just picking up on something you, you said a little bit earlier in that piece about, you know, because we're all, all guilty of comparing ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, to in some extent to other people. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, it can make us feel quite uncomfortable and a little bit vulnerable perhaps to um, be naked in front of a partner. How do we become more accepting of the body that we're in and stop comparing ourselves not only to other people around us but also to all the images that we're fed you know, on traditional and social media? Julia. Well, <laughs> how do we? I mean, that's yeah. a very good question and I think it's an upward battle for, uphill battle for mm. most of us, let's be honest, because we cannot avoid the bombardment of, of these messages which in our business we're all fighting against, aren't we, tooth and nail to try and reduce this ridiculous focus on appearance, which is really, and I Mm. see the legacy of that in my clinics. I also work in the burn service, so I see two populations where they're, you know, both suffering and struggling against this kind of tidal wave of pressure to conform to the inverted commas norm and uh, find it very difficult. But actually a lot of people I meet uh, when they're teenagers, because we see them as they're uh, going through puberty um, regularly, uh, struggle enormously. Not all, um, but some more than others. But what I, because I follow them through into adulthood, I have the privilege of being able to do that in my service. I can see them unfurling and unraveling and becoming much more centered, much more mature than a lot of their contemporaries because mm. they've been tooled up by the experiences they've been through. Of course. Yeah. Um, and developed an inordinate amounts of res- resilience and it's backed up by the research that this, this process happens. Um, and maybe the appearance concern becomes less of an issue for, for individuals that we see as they move into adulthood because of what they've, they've been through. So the downward comparison can flip over mm. actually um, as, they, as they develop. So. Definitely. That's very it's a good message, I think, for society. Definitely, and I think you know, and making from time to time those positive comparisons as well, because we we don't always do that. We tend to when we do compare ourselves to other people, we tend to do it in a negative way. And um, you know, last week, you know, to give an example, I was sitting by the by the pool on holiday, and I was just looking at, at everybody's feet. You know, cause that's <laughs> kind of the vantage point you've got where you're sitting, and I was like. I've got good feet, you know, <laughs> around comparing to other people. These are a good set of feet I've got on the end of my legs. And it's like, but we don't usually take the time to compare mm-hmm. the things that are good um, and that we perceive as good about ourselves to, to other people. I think that's a really good point. And I think we're also liable to choose our comparisons. So we might choose someone who's got a better job than us in our, uh, in our kind of perception to compare our job or a professional status, someone who's got a better home life than us, our home life, someone who we think looks better than us, our appearance, who's more active than us, their sporting ability. So we choose a different kind of metric or a different comparator for each of these things that might be important to us and then we don't match up on any of them. Where actually if we just picked one person and compared everything, maybe it wouldn't be such a, a kind of a negative mm. <laughs> position mm. for, for us. So, so as well as the kind of tendency to pick things we don't do very well on, but also look at who we compare ourselves Absolutely. to. Mm. And also with the social media, and there are, like you mentioned kind of the comparisons mm. in real life and social media, there are um, uh, resources such as the Get Real Toolkit that encourage us to look at who created a, a message and why, what techniques we use to create it, what values and beliefs it kind of 
puts forward, um, how different people might interpret it and what the message means to you. And to always remember that everything you see is generated for a reason and for a purpose. That's often to sell you something, whether that's through a traditional advert or an influencer, or, um, or it could be to try and tell you something about somebody else's life. We all choose what we post on social media and we normally have a motivation or a reason for doing so. Um, if any one picture might have been touched up, there might have been a hundred different alternatives that someone didn't use. It's only a fraction of a second. It doesn't tell you anything about how they actually feel. And it's probably in all material respects unrealistic, both for you and for the person it actually depicts. So just be uh, critical of and questioning about the images that we mm. see, whether yeah. that's professional ones or ones that are friends, family, you know, acquaintances, posters, is probably quite important to, to do. Definitely. Okay, so uh, Julia, um, one of the things that was mentioned a lot in the roadshow and survey, particularly amongst women, was that people would use sex as a way of being accepted. For example, a number of people reported having a lot of one-night stands. They felt they couldn't compensate their perception of not being attractive by being easy. What are your thoughts on this? Well, that's <laughs> yeah, it's quite a challenging question. I know. Um, I have thought about it a bit. And um, I think what's important to say from the outset is that I think talking to lots of young people in my job, but also outside the job, um, there's been a cultural shift in the last few years, mm -hmm. I think, away from the more traditional model of, um, you know, we must be restrained, um, we must try not to sleep with too many partners if we don't want to be regarded as loose or promiscuous or whatever. And that particularly applied to women, of course. And now I think uh, things have shifted quite a bit away from that kind of traditional way of looking at relationships. Mm -hmm. And young people of today are much more relaxed, I think, about experimenting, mm. you know, having really quite short-term relationships. Particularly women maybe feel more liberated and free to experiment more than they used to because there's maybe less social denigration, as we call it, criticism of, of the way they're behaving. And I think that's what we, we need to keep an eye on, mm. that we may not need to necessarily separate the women with uh, cleft and or palate uh, from the general population because of the, we're all so different anyway. Um, and, you know, the differences are much less than the similarities between somebody with a cleft condition and the general population. I think we need to keep that in mind as well. Um, so I think I wouldn't like to stand in a sort of um, judgmental kind of position on that. And I think if my only concern would be is if the young woman or woman is at any age, is at risk of is safety might be an issue. If that's the case, then obviously that, that, that would concern me a great deal and I would want to offer support or signpost mm -hmm. somebody. If I did meet somebody in, in my practice who was experiencing such a low level of self-esteem, they had to feel they had to sleep with lots of different people, or be intimate with lots of different people to feel worthwhile. That would be kind of where, where I would be starting to explore mm. their sense of self-worth um, and then go from there, not necessarily assume that they're struggling in any particular way. I'd want to ex assess that very carefully. Mm. So if they're doing something that they don't actually want to do or that exactly. they don't value or that they feel they need to do but isn't kind of in their best interest, that's when you have some mm -hmm. some concern and yeah, look at definitely. exploring it further. Mm. Certainly. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, can I just say one more thing yeah, on that topic? Um, 
Obviously, when I do my assessment, I would cover, and intimacy is a tricky subject for a lot of people in healthcare, and that's been well reported, yeah. but in psychology, we sort of have permission to, to do that without yeah. people being shocked, because <laughs> obviously we're in a, in a confidential space, away from the rest of the team, usually. Um, but, you know, I'd be asking about historical, maybe issues around violence, sex mm. abuse, etc. If I had a feeling that that might be relevant, because that might be something that is is happening and affecting their behaviour now mm. in relationships, mm. so that would be part of it. Mm. Of course, it's also something um, that more broadly in the visible difference research I've done, people have mentioned. Um, I can only think of one example of people I've spoken to where they've mentioned kind of uh, sexual or physical intimacy and activity as being something to use to to compensate as as it may be described for looking or feeling that they don't look attractive but people offer other things as well people have told me they've um, focused uh, perhaps if there's a difference to their to their face they've focused on physical activity and making their body very very attractive and kind of sculpted to mm-hmm. try and compensate not a word I like using but that's mm-hmm. how people were speaking or using resources or jobs or a sense of humor or their personality or offering relative youth and having an older partner so Kind of, um, there's a, a, a kind of nice phrase coined by Viren Swami called, called the mating market, which kind of describes a, a negotiated exchange where one partner assesses what they've got to offer and what the other person has to offer them. It sounds a bit kind of clinical mm. and uh, uh, and cynical as well, perhaps, but um, perhaps people may perceive that access to kind of sexual activity is one commodity that they can can offer mm. to someone. Um, and if that's being done to compensate for a perceived appearance deficiency, that would perhaps be a little bit concerning and be where they may benefit from speaking to someone or seeking mm-hmm. some help from, from Julia. If they're happy to do it and they want to do it, obviously that's an entirely different different matter, but it's the idea that you feel you need mm. to compensate. I think that's the concerning thing there mm. to, yeah. to me. Um, Definitely. And you're absolutely right in that people do that in a multitude of, of different ways. Obviously, mm-hmm. we, you know, we've spoken in detail about one way, but it is other things like you say, you know, people might use their money, for example, you know, they might be the person who um, is always buying the round of drinks to be accepted, those, those sorts mm-hmm. of of things we can see play out obviously not only in the visible difference population but in anyone who perceives that they're uh, inadequate in some way. Um, I think is when we start seeing a lot of those behaviours. On, on the flip side, as you say, Julia, I totally agree. I think the, there has been a sort of attitudinal shift in our culture. Um, perhaps we, we take more liberal attitudes towards um, sex and numbers of partners and things like that than perhaps historically um, people have. And, and of course, the, the side effect of that is that some people see that happening a lot and then feel perhaps that they're missing out. And it was reported a few times on the survey by men and women that they've never experienced intimacy or had sex. And it was a concern for some people that they may never experience intimacy because they've not participated in it when they were younger. Is it possible to be a late starter and still live a fulfilled sex absolutely, life? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and again, the flip side of what we were just talking about, the liberal, liberal, more liberal approach, there's also a very strong movement in our society to, to wait for the right partner. And again, that's reflected in some, in some research that's been carried out recently. So there's no harm to resist and to go along with the tide. You can do things differently if you wish to. Um, if you feel confident enough about um, saying no to a partner and 
um, just you know meeting people as friends, putting yourself in situations where you meet new people, so you have the opportunity to maybe find somebody who you very, find very attractive, um, and then start developing a relationship with that individual if it's you know goes both ways. And there is you know there's um, I think in the for people with clefts, that's definitely uh, something I've noticed actually in, my, in the people I see. That um, I think it's also reflecting what I was saying before about teenagers struggling and then coming out of that phase and mm. feeling much more mm. confident about things than their peers of the same age. Um, and then also developing relationships at that point. Um, when they're sort of early 20s, mid 20s, you can see relationships beginning to develop for the first time for them. Um, because they feel much more ready to, much more mature than they did before. So definitely, you don't have to feel under pressure to to um, go along with your peers when you're younger necessarily. Definitely. Okay. So I think um, some of the fears um, comes from people feeling that prospective partners may judge them less favourably for not having had sex or having, having never been kissed. But there must be something wrong with them. From your experience, what do prospective partners actually think about this? I think, from what, from what patients have told me, that yeah. um, it can cause tension, it can cause conflict within relationships, mm. um, and lack of confidence in kind of knowing how to progress a relationship at an intimate level can can be difficult. Um, but again, it goes back to what we were saying about communication, I think. Mm. Feeling that you can talk to your partner about it is absolutely the fulcrum, the centre mm. of um, making progress in this area so that you can find a way to be talking on the same from the same hymn sheet, so mm. to speak. But then if that isn't possible, um, I do know people who've actually sought out facilitation. It may not be through us, it might be through Relate or whatever, services like that, where couples can go. And some people prefer to do that. They don't necessarily want to raise these issues with the CLEF team, because they can be, in their minds, a conflict of interest, despite our efforts to say to families and older patients, look, we're here for you, it's confidential, we don't have to say anything to the rest of the team if you don't want us to, and all of those things that we would always say. Uh, even then, some people just feel very insecure about mm -hmm. Maybe they have trust, you know, they've had issues mm. with trust mm. with other yeah. people in the past, other healthcare professionals, and want to go somewhere more neutral outside the cleft pathway, which we represent in a way to them. Um, and that can be very helpful. Mm. But it can be, you know, it can be very difficult uh, sometimes, but there are ways through it. Yeah. And there's help out there. I mean, Clappers, the website's very useful, I think, in that respect. Mm. Thank you. And I think you're absolutely right in that it's about talking about these things, right, with par mm. partners and so that people are on the same page um, and that there's not big surprises w with sort of these sorts of things because they are quite important in a relationship that people are understanding of where each other is at and what each other feels comfortable or uncomfortable with. And one of the things, you know, that we've that can be quite tough generally, I think, with intimacy is to be clear about when we want something and when we don't want something and how to communicate. What can we do, Nick, to be confident in these situations to make sure that we're seeking out the things we want, but also being clear and true to ourselves or communicating when we don't? Sure. So I think, um, obviously, the, the kind of intimate and sexual world is a, perhaps one that we might think of as being quite high stakes and quite important to us and quite valued and valuable within our 
live. So I think general kind of um, communication tips have uh, applicability here. It's just realizing that they apply in these relationships as much as they do in mm. any others. Um, there's a nice uh, kind of phrase, I can't remember where it's from, but it basically says that like communication assertiveness is a skill, not a personality type. So don't think that you can't do it because of who you are. It's something that you can practice. It's something that you can um, try to uh, make take make progress with if it's something that you find difficult. Some people are obviously more compliant and more um, uh, less likely to put forward their own wants and desires than others. But it's something that we can all try and try and do. Um, and it's, again, it's very important here because obviously we're talking about your body, your feelings, your relationships, important things that are kind of quite central central to us. Um, Julia mentioned Relate just now, who's also got a quite a good website and some um, nice kind of communication tips on, on one page. And, and these include like trying it, don't be put off by it, don't be scared of it. And we kind of touched on avoidance before and trying to kind of confront things that you find difficult. Um, I'd probably say it's important in a relationship that you feel you can, assuming it's kind of a longer term relationship that you can have these kind of conversations with your your partner. So um, uh, kind of introducing them into the relationship has got to be a um, it's got to be a, a kind of a, a valued goal if you have things that you're not talking about and that you want to discuss with them or or you feel that your needs wants aren't being kind of understood properly. Um, and then there's kind of like practical tips, like trying not to put them on the defensive. So using personal pronouns like I and me, this is mm. how this makes me feel or you make me feel, or I would prefer or I would like um, not being accusatory and kind of making accusations of the other mm. person, mm. but focusing on, on you and your feelings. Um, again, a bit like the disclosure conversation, choosing a time and a place that you're happy with, that you're comfortable with. Um, I can't draw any evidence to, to back this up, but I'd suggest that perhaps um, a couple of minutes before you are going to engage in some kind of sexual activity or when it hasn't gone how one of you would like it to go is probably not the best time mm, to do it. You know, maybe find <laughs> some space and some, yeah. some kind of um, uh, distance from the environment in which mm. that activity may take, may take part. Um, be prepared to give the discussion the time it needs. Don't think that you can do it in five minutes before your standard is on or something mm. like that. And um, listen to the other person. It's important that you, you understand their position as much as they understand yours and there's a mutual kind of communication. Um, and again, as we've kind of mentioned before, practice. Um, uh, you can practice your skill as an individual. You can practice communication within a relationship and introducing kind of healthy and positive patterns that you're both happy and satisfied with um, and if it is difficult seek some help relate offer a service um, there's the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists that may you may be able to find a, a, a therapist through there may be cost implications of those um, it may be an opportunity to contact the, the mm. cleft services even as an adult which I guess is something that perhaps you guys might want to speak about a little mm. bit bit more but my understanding is that you are in a position where you can do that if you feel you mm. you need to um, and then there's kind of social skills training changing faces offer offer some uh, courses that may be of, of use 
to people basically focusing on this interaction and role playing and practicing and, and modeling and trying to make people feel more confident in their ability to engage in these discussions and happier with uh, hopefully happier with the outcome in the in the long term that's right and i think you know as you say picking those moments to have mm-hmm. awkward conversations is really important i um, remember reading about recently a, a man who had chosen to take the moment of being on a roller coaster to break up <laughs> with his girlfriend perhaps not the best time no definitely yeah. not <laughs> no. <laughs> no picking those moments have those yeah. difficult conversations yeah definitely definitely i would definitely reinforce what you said about changing faces i think they have a quite a, a good section actually on, mm. on intimacy mm-hmm. tips really Okay, there's a lot of um, emphasis, um, Nick, on intimacy and particularly on sex. Of course, many of the images of sex are very fulfilling, positive sexual experiences. When we know reality, it can often be a bit clumsy and awkward, Mm -hmm. particularly in the earlier days. What advice would you give to people who maybe had an awkward experience and are concerned intimacy may not be their strength? I'd start that with saying that obviously sexual activity and a particular type of sexual activity are not the only ways to achieve intimacy within a relationship. Um, kind of sharing personal moments, experiences, uh, self-disclosure, telling one another about your your life and, and your feelings are all things that obviously can build intimacy, build intimacy and trust and closeness within a relationship. Um, so we can look at perhaps focusing on on other ways of building trust and intimacy, um, which could be rewarding in their in their own right, and then may perhaps make kind of sexual intimacy more um, realistic or easily achieved. I, I couldn't say that for definite, but it, it might be something that could happen. Um, thinking of kind of like touching and physical intimacy, there may be things aside from sex that you can do. I can think of one uh, lady with alopecia who described the kind of regular or ritual, if you like, um, activity of her husband shaving her head, so a proper activity that requires quite a strong bond and a sense of connectedness and, and trust. Um, so there are things outside of sex that people can do together to, to help further and strengthen the relationship. Um, on sex itself, as we've touched on already, be uh, wary of these depictions in the, in the media um, they're idealised, they're glamorised, they're romanticised. They, again, probably don't reflect anybody's actual reality. You know, yours, mine, anyone else's. The people in, in the in the pictures, in the in the images, in the films, um, they're just not realistic kind of comparisons. Um, again, it's probably normal to experience some level of awkwardness and clumsiness. I'm sure lots of people have uh, have those experiences, whether they whether they have a visible difference or a cleft or, or anything else. Um, and again, the, the suggestion that perhaps mindfulness and trying to be present and be in the moment and kind of uh, ignore or um, not focus too much on the noise is probably, probably a useful suggestion as well. Um, remember that the other person is someone who's chosen to spend time with you and hopefully cares about you and probably wants you to be happy and to go at a pace and to be fulfilled and satisfied in your relationship and not to kind of do things you're not comfortable with and everything. Um, and um, Julia mentioned kind of the uh, like gradual progress towards what you might want to achieve, so perhaps find things that are 
um, achievable in the short term and then build on them and develop them until you move towards what you hope to achieve in the in the longer term um, and I guess it might sound a bit glib but if it's if it is a bit awkward if it is a bit clumsy and it doesn't improve straight away you know, don't worry because the other person probably doesn't mind practicing a little bit with you so you know it, it can improve I'm sure over over time and they may not mind a little bit of awkwardness and clumsiness mm-hmm. is not necessarily the end of the relationship or the kind of uh, 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 the end of the world if if things stay a little bit difficult for a while and you're kind of working on them and trying to make progress together um, yeah, I don't know if Julia would have much no, I to do, I, everything you said I totally agree with and I think it's it's also about I really reinforce what you said about finding the right time and place mm-hmm. uh, to be intimate because obviously most of us are leading very stressful, busy lives mm-hmm. when we're exhausted, tired, rushing about and the pressure of work and family life, etc. if you have children can make it very difficult. So I think setting a framework around your special time is absolutely crucial uh, to create the environment for communication, physical or otherwise. So I think, uh, yes, planning ahead is important for that. Definitely. Definitely. And as we've, we've mentioned just before, there is a lot of attention given particularly to sexual intimacy, um, you know, generally in society and in the media. And it can feel, you know, a lot like everybody else is doing it all the time and that you're missing out if you're not, which of course the reality can't be that, but it's, it's what it's depicted to be. What are some other ways to feel fulfilled in life if you're not experiencing sexual intimacy at the present time? Well, um, there's so many things that you can do to, to kind of refresh, replenish, nourish um, your kind of psychological world, really, out with the kind of grind, daily grind that we all have to go through. Um, and through, through developing, you know, the usual kind of, it sounds again a bit glib about hobbies, you know, activities that you do sort of in the evenings, at weekends, which will hopefully, which if, if it involves other people, develop um, opportunities for you to meet others, and then maybe that will lead on to friendships and maybe more intimate friendships uh, along the way. But um, I think creating opportunities to meet others mm. is, is central to that. And again, talking to this young man uh, today, um, he was slipping into avoiding I'm not directly answering your question, it's sort of uh, tangential to that, but into avoid an avoidance pattern, as we all know, avoidance, not always, but can be very toxic mm. and can lead to withdrawal and being quite aloof and separate from other people, um, putting intimacy on one side for a minute. So that would be something I would always be watching out for mm. in my job, uh, to try and encourage people not to get into that pattern. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's a way of coping, and so you have to be careful how you talk about that but um, yes fulfilling yourself in other ways can create opportunities mm. certainly mm. certainly can yeah I think um, uh, uh, Professor Nicola Rumsey who established our research centre in the, in the in the beginning um, often brings up a nice kind of pie chart that has um, different parts of the self on so it would include appearance kind of being fun to be with having good social skills uh, hobbies, sporting interests, anything like that. And her main point was don't put everything in one of those sections mm. of this pie chart. If there's lots of parts of you, don't value one of them above and beyond and to the exclusion of everything else. Because obviously if if you do that, you're kind of vulnerable to uh, 
a distress if that one part of your life isn't going the way you, you want it to. So valuing different parts of yourself, I think, kind of touches and uh, is similar to perhaps Julia's message about kind of the hobbies and interests and everything. You know, build yourself around several things, not just mm. one. Um, Certainly, and seeing the value in all the, the other things yeah. that you do mm. as well that, that make you who you are. So this is um, going to be the last question. This is for you, Julia. <laughs> so uh, talking about um, kissing, sex and intimacy with a professional could feel like a strange thing to do, but I suspect it's actually fairly routine to a psychologist. What support can people get with these topics from a cleft team psychologist and how do they make it known that this is a topic that they wish to discuss? Very good question and I think what's important is to create an atmosphere in your clinics mm -hmm. when you have contact with patients which is open, accessible, available, empathic, sympathetic and providing an advocacy kind of role, a bridge between them and maybe the rest of the team, particularly if they're feeling intimidated, lacking confidence about talking to say a surgeon about you know, their views about the treatment plan that's been developed around maybe having their jaws altered or their noses mm -hmm. or whatever it is that they've been discussing. So I think I've always felt that very strongly and, and if you look at the research, one of the main tenets of being a successful therapist is having a trusting relationship. You can have a PhD or lots of degrees mm -hmm. and but if you can't relate to people mm -hmm. you might as well find a different job to be honest so that's I think all my colleagues would would agree with that that yeah. that's the kind of cornerstone and because we have access to access we, we see patients right from the beginning with their families as they grow and develop we're always in clinics we're always visible I think that we're very privileged in that mm -hmm. respect most services don't have access to psychology in that way but because they, we're normalised in our role, we're not seen as stigmatising professionals, mm -hmm. hopefully. That enables people to see psychologists in a different light. Um, and then hopefully they will come to us or we will approach them if we're, what we're concerned. And something we do in our clinics, before people come into the clinic, where there might be several people sitting around a table staring at them, mm -hmm. is ask them to complete a checklist with mm -hmm. one of our assistant psychologists asking about lots and lots of different areas that we know tend to be problematic for people and they tick off the ones that they want to discuss in the, in the appointment um, so that we create an opportunity for people to plan what they want to say when they're confronted by the, not confronted, but when they're speaking to the team. Mm. I think that gives a, mess, a very strong message that we are on your side yeah. and we want to meet your needs and I think we're part, we're part of that process, we lead that process and I think that sets us up hopefully to be able to be seen as, as somebody who can be spoken to about intimacy and sexual issues and I will bring it up when I say when I meet people and describe my role you know with an adult I will or teenager older teenager I will say that you know we, and we do we do talk about boyfriends girlfriends on our routine questionnaires that we use at 5 10 15 and 20 obviously it's relevant much more for 5 and uh, 15 and 20 year olds but so they know that that's something that we're mm -hmm. taking account of in our assessments mm -hmm. so hopefully that creates the right atmosphere mm -hmm. Certainly. Yeah. I, I, the, I appreciate it can be a very difficult topic to talk about and that lots of healthcare professionals won't necessarily have training or resources and might be scared there's nowhere to refer someone on to if they are having difficulties and that even the lots of traditional medical contexts can kind of seem rather dehumanising and therefore perhaps asexual but it would be really nice if 
lots of healthcare professionals, GPs, nurses, specialist nurses, felt comfortable at least initiating the discussion, making the patient feel that they're able to talk about these issues, acknowledging that they are legitimate and that they are potential um, impacts of their condition or their altered appearance, and giving them some level of support. Obviously then some people may need to be referred on to more specialist services and receive more kind of intensive therapy, but just a culture where it's acknowledged as being important and something that can be discussed with any healthcare professional Mm. that is concerned with any condition that Mm. affects one's appearance would be a really nice place to be. Um, I'm sure there's lots and lots of healthcare professionals that do do that. Um, In the research I've done, some people have recounted less good experiences um, and um, hopefully they will diminish. But it would be really nice if, if everyone felt comfortable speaking to any of their care providers about these these topics. I totally mm. agree and I yeah. think because you know these are you know such normal conversations really to have in life but it can feel so taboo sometimes um, and I think yeah I hope that that things like this discussion help to break down some of those mm. barriers as well and I can't recommend enough that if people watching or listening to this um, do feel that they benefit from some follow-up to get in touch with their their cleft team and book in that appointment with, with the psychologist because, as we're saying, it is so routine. You've got the expertise um, and really it shouldn't feel, feel awkward. Um, thank you very much to you both yeah, um, for you. coming on to the programme this month. That is all we've got time for this month on our panel discussion and we hope that you at home have found the discussion to be both useful and interesting. Remember that you can access more information and listen again to this and other panel discussions on our website at www.clapper.com slash adult services project. And as we were just mentioning, if this discussion has made you want to find out more information, then please do contact your cleft team. You'll find the contact details for your local cleft team on our website. We would like to thank our panellists, Nick Sharrett and Julia Kudargan, as well as a big thank you to our home for joining us. And do make sure to join us again next month when we'll be discussing decision-making around jaw surgery. So if that's something that you've potentially got coming up for you, then do make sure that you tune in as well. Until then, bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in. We want to know what you thought of the programme so we can make it even better. If you found this programme interesting, please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. Our next podcast and video is coming up at the end of next month. Check out www.clapper.com slash talk to find out what we'll be talking about next. You can also watch this and other panel discussions again on our website. And we want your questions to take to the panel. So visit our panel discussion page on our website to submit your questions. You also can check out everything we're up to with the Adult Services Project, including a list of our upcoming programmes and events at www.clapper.com slash adult services project and finally don't forget you can also follow us on twitter and facebook we look forward to seeing you again soon bye for now bye